What uh, I have planned for this talk is to um, do a little bit of commentary on this important chant that we do in Theravadan Buddhism that we chanted, I think, last night, Anicca Vata Sankara. And then, um, in particular, focusing on the Sankara part of it, which I translate for this purpose as constructions, mental constructions. And, um, and the last part of it, which is happiness. Uh, so how, the relationship between this fundamental insight that the Buddha had and this fundamental happiness that the Buddha discovered. And I'll do it by, uh, partly by um, uh, dividing up the present moment, our present moment experience, into three parts. They're not solidly separate, but three aspects of the present. There's what's happening, there's our relationship to what's happening, and uh, there's the self that has that relationship to what's happening. So those are the, and then I'll come back to this mental construction and how to bring them to peace. So that's the plan, the outline, where we're going. And uh, so the chant, and there's many ways of chanting it, I chant it this way. Anicca vata sankara upadovayo damino upakitua niruchanti tesang vupasamo suko. When my first son was born, this is the first thing I said to him, was this chant. So in, in Theravadan Buddhism, it's one of the top five chants. <laughs> <laughs> so it's important. And it's translated as, all constructed things are impermanent. They have the nature of arising and passing away. Bringing all of these, bringing these mental constructions, or stilling these mental constructions, is happiness. Or instilling these mental constructions, one sees happiness. So here there's this fundamental insight of the Buddha into mental constructions. They're rising and passing. And so we need to understand a little bit what these constructions are. And there's something about bringing these to still, stilling them, bringing them to some kind of peace, which can bring a certain kind of happiness that the Buddha emphasized. So in talking about const- these mental constructions, I like to say that in the present moment, there are these three aspects of experience. There's what's happening, there's our relationship to the experience, and there's us in relationship. And it fits very well into kind of basic structure of a sentence in English, where you have a subject, a verb, and an object. So there's a subject, here's me, us, self. There's the verb, which is the activity that we have in relationship to an object in the world, something. And so each of these three areas of life is something that the Buddhist tradition puts emphasis on. And at different times, in different ways, um, uh, 
Buddhist practitioners will study, understand, develop wisdom around each of these three areas. Some teachers focus on one more than the other. So the first aspect of that is what's happening, kind of objective experience of what's happening. And, um, and so there's uh, a lot of wisdom to be had through understanding more deeply what this reality is that we're in, that we're facing, that we're relating to, that we engage in. And so, um, and there's many things to understand about that, and that can give a lot of freedom and wisdom and variety of things to understand. One of the very fascinating things to understand is how much of the so-called objective world, objective experience, is not so objective after all, but it is really a, a projection of our conventions, of our concepts and ideas. So a great one that we're going to, some of us are going to share in in a little while, is New Year's Eve. You know, New Year's Eve does not exist. <laughs> and uh, it exists as a convention, as an idea that people have created. But outside of human conventions and concepts and ideas, it has no objective reality. I mean, if we had chosen the solstice to mark the new year, that made some sense. It, would, you know, it has some, some correlation to something going on in the cosmos. But this is a funny date. You just kind of conjure it up out of the air. I don't know how they, the Romans did it. And it doesn't mark anything. And in fact, here in San Francisco, it's been said, you can go around every weekend and celebrate a different New Year's Eve. <laughs> there are so many cultures in, in the Bay Area that uh, they all have different dates for this thing, right? And so there's, you know, the Chinese New Year, which makes a little more sense than ours. And, uh, and there's a Tibetan, and there's a, you know, there's a Thai, and there's a Buddhist, and you know, there's so many different ways, you know. So we could, if you like partying, you just kind of you know, <laughs> do the New Year's Eve thing. But New Year's Eve is just a concept, a convention. And, um, and, but around this convention, there's a lot of activity. People relate to it and get involved in it, and People do things that in normal, normal states of mind they wouldn't dream of doing. <laughs> they, you know, they put on hats. And, and some of you are here because of what those other people do. <laughs> and um, it's all very confusing, too. You know, it doesn't exist. And, you know, we say December, the twelfth month, and the word December in Latin means ten. <laughs> November means nine. October means eight. September means seven. No wonder we're confused. Even you know, one thing to have concepts that make sense, and then have concepts that you know don't even make sense. So these are conventions, and so when we see it as a convention, then we can relate to it in different ways. We can buy into it, lock, lock and barrel, so I say, the whole thing. And some people suffer a lot around the convention of New Year's Eve. Some people are liberated from it. They go to bed early, They're happy, no, no, no relationship to it. And some people will pick it up in an easy way and 
share the convention and use the convention as a way of marking something or adding meaning to it, maybe joining together in a community and feeling connectedness. And so it becomes a vehicle for something useful and meaningful. So how do we hold the conventions? How do we hold anything is very important. And how we, how we hold something uh, as it has to do with our relationship to it. So what's our relationship to something, to a convention, to New Year's Eve? So as, a, as this talk proceeds, I want to, uh, in the background of it, or the foreground of it, have this example. I'm going to have a bell here. Now, there's different ways of holding the bell. And I can hold it this way. Or I can hold it this way. I can hear this beautiful sound and grasp it. It's mine. (laughs) Where did it go? (laughs) Oh, I know better than grasping that, you know, there's not, the sound is not the bell. So I'm not going to grasp the bell, but I'll grasp that sound. (laughs) And I can't do that. What is it that gets destroyed in our grasping? It's possible to be free completely of the bell and just put it down. No more bell. It's also possible to hold it lightly and make something beautiful. So how we relate to something is very important. And something like happiness, how we relate to that is important as well. Because there could be some happiness, some sense of well-being, and then we grab it. And it can't be grabbed. Have a little bit of beauty. And I want more. So I, come on, come on, you know. And I, I can't affect it that way. I can't, you know. So how do we hold it? How do we relate to things? It's very important. So the second uh, aspect of what's happening now is our relationship to things. And it turns out that Buddhism, Buddhist teachings, puts a huge, huge emphasis on this world of relatedness, how we relate. Understanding it, and also developing healthy relatedness. So the emphasis on ethics is all about relationships. The emphasis on generosity is about relationship. Loving kindness, compassion, and so forth are about being, how to be in relationship. The foundations, so much of the right speech, so much of the foundation of Buddhism, and so much, so much of what gets cultivated and developed in Buddhism has to do with creating healthy relationships. And that's very important to remember as I go on in this talk. Because I can make a beautiful sound from this bell. Do it again. Now, how many times in a row 
Can I make that beautiful sound before you start getting tired of it? Even beautiful relatedness, even like the beautiful, beautiful practice of loving kindness or the practice of generosity, is an activity. And if we're constantly doing the activity, even beautiful activity, it takes effort and energy. And if it's constant, it takes, it's tiring. So the Buddha understood this, and he pointed the possibility of understanding the world of relatedness, of how do we relate to things, and settling it down, putting it to rest, taking a vacation, so we can see this reality from a different vantage point that we can't see if we're always in relationship. So the second aspect of the present moment is a relationship we have. And so a very important part of mindfulness practice is to begin understanding the different aspects of how we relate. And in fact, as we stay present for our experience, like the breath, sooner or later, one of the things that gets highlighted is how we're relating to our breath, to our practice, to ourselves, to all kinds of things. And a lot of the inner work of Buddhist practice, or the primary inner work, has to do with coming to terms with how we relate. Even such a fundamental Buddhist teaching as grasping as being the source of suffering. Grasping is a way of relating. That suffering, that kind of suffering arises out of a way of relating. So this is a really important part, just to understand this area. There's a lot to understand, much more than I'll cover tonight, but I just want to touch on a few points. For, for, for a good number of people, how we relate to the world is often through the medium, the vehicle of our thinking. And we think about things. So something like New Year's Eve only exists through the vehicle of our thinking. That's what it means to be a convention. And so we have to have certain kind of mental activity going on in order to have the idea of New Year's Eve. If you think about breakfast, that is not having breakfast. All your thoughts about breakfast doesn't compare to the experience of eating breakfast. I have spent an embarrassingly large amount of my life <laughs> thinking about things. And, I've, and about things which never happened. I spent a whole year in my little, my spare time planning for a monastic job that I was convinced I was going to get, and I was the only one qualified to get it. And I planned around it and everything, and you know, just everything. And, you know, and then only not the, year, the time came, and I was given a different job. Now, what was I doing? How many hours did I spend planning for a future that never happened? Rather, it was rather embarrassing. But luckily, I didn't get the job. And then I could see, wow, what was I thinking? So to think about 
So thinking about, about is not the same thing as having something happen. And I think it's really interesting to see, you know, future planning. So much of my future never happened. And it took me a long time to realize that I had a very poor track record. <laughs> in thinking about the future. And it finally dawned on me what a poor track record I had. I kind of, okay, okay, enough. I loosened up. I've sat on retreat, meditating, and started thinking about how great it would be to go in the next retreat. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of different, you know, if you're, if you're eating breakfast and you think about lunch, at least you're still eating breakfast. But if you're on retreat, thinking about the next retreat, you're not really on this retreat. So, you know, how much do we miss in thinking about things? An interesting phenomenon for me, uh, kind of discovery for me, was uh, those times when I couldn't fall asleep in the middle of the night, laying there in bed, awake, and suffering. And then looking at that suffering, and realizing that actually, if I looked around or felt around in the present moment, I'm warm, I'm comfortable, I'm nicely awake. <laughs> you know, sometimes I wish I was, other times, you know, nicely, I'm nicely awake, and things are safe, I've eaten enough, things are good. In and of it's comfortable, it's pleasant. The suffering is not here. The suffering is born through my projection into the future of what this means. Tomorrow I'll be tired. Tomorrow I'll be dragging. Tomorrow, this, this, this. So do I want to live in the thoughts, the concepts, and give them a lot of credence and value and weight? Or do I want to just really be here? So one way we relate to the world is through the vehicle of thinking. And then we, then so thinking occurs, and then we have a, a relationship to our thoughts. We believe them. Every thought is believable. Every thought has authority. Every thought is, um, you know, is deranged. <laughs> you know, we have all these kinds of relationship to them. We 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 we're tired of them. We're pushing them away. We try to get rid of them. We're trying to hold on to them. We're trying to do this and that. Um, we're very interested in them, we're fascinated with them. All those statements have to do with a way of relating to them. And to a great degree, the perpetuation of thinking occurs because of the way in which we relate to them. We're interested in them, we're fascinated in them. We think they're important. We think they're going to solve our life. If I just think it all right, if I just think it just right, I'll have a better past. Isn't that great? You can redo the past by just thinking about it. So, a very important. So, there's wisdom to be had in understanding about the nature of thinking and how we live in thought. 
and perhaps as another way of relating to life, to ourselves, and to thinking than what we have. Thinking is not bad, inherently. It's beautiful thinking. I, very, I have a very friendly relationship to my thinking. Thank you. But, um, you know, I don't want my friends over all the time. <laughs> you know, it'd be, so it's nice to put them, you know, you know, put them to sleep. So in this world of relatedness, then we start looking at the nature of relationship. And there's a lot of conventions that come into play. So I want to give an example of this in relationship to meditation and being with the breath. Sometimes meditation teachers will talk about watching the breath. And sometimes they'll talk about feeling the breath. Sometimes they'll talk about being the breath. Buddha talked about being aware of the breath in the breath. So two different ways. One way is to watch, be an observer, step back. The other is to be right in it, in the middle of it. Both are beautiful ways. They work as wonderful antidotes for some of the ways in which people relate to their breathing. Some people are so much thinking about their breath. And the, one of the aspects of thinking about something is it tends to keep us separate from the experience. So if people are always thinking about the breathing, it might be more useful to say, feel the breath, sense the breath, be in the breath, be in the body and sense it from the inside as a corrective to thinking all the time. Some people are very hesitant, cautious, they stand back, hold back, or they're resistant, or they brace themselves. They don't, they're afraid of where it's going to take them or something. All kinds of relationships where it might be useful to say, rest in it, go into it and be it. There are other people who maybe, you know, they're, so, they're going to strive, they're, oh, the breath, I'll just go in there and pulverize it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'll just get in there and really get concentrated and tight and really you know, really do this breath thing really well. Um, or, you know, some people who just kind of live in everything. You know, their emotions, oh, I just, I just, you know, the emotions take over, I'm just in it all. You know, just, you know, just, you know, it's great when it's great, and I don't understand why it's so hard when it's so hard. But, but just, just I'm in it. And so for those people, say, hey, step back, you know, kind of step back, relax, you know, be an observer, just watch it. You know, watch it like a like you're up on top of the ridge up here, far away from all this drama and experience. Don't try to make anything happen. Don't try to get in there and engineer what's happening. Just step back and watch. All of this is conventions. All of these are using conventions, using ideas. So the idea... so. It can be useful to use the idea of being in your experience. It can be useful other times to be, have the idea of being apart from it. Another idea with the breath is some people find it really useful um, to not to as an antidote to jerking the mind or pouncing on the breath or you know with their attention to sit sit back and let the breathing come to you. Some people the first time they hear that it's kind of like a great idea. Let the breathing come to you. These are all conventions. 
awareness doesn't go anywhere. The mind doesn't go anywhere. We say the mind wanders away and we bring it back. The mind doesn't go anywhere. It's also possible, so, so we relate, we have all these conventions and they're useful. We play with them and they're antidotes and they settle things. But it's also possible to relate to the breathing, to be present for the breath, without a convention, without a way of relating to it, but present. The mind doesn't go towards the breath, the breath doesn't come to you. The breath arises in awareness. There's no, the, breath, the awareness doesn't go anywhere. Awareness is not localized, doesn't have a place, there's no one running the show. Awareness is there, and it can be free of all these conventions and ideas, just there. So how do you relate to the breathing? How do you, what's going on for you? So what's useful, maybe it's useful to enter into the breath, given what's going on for you. And at some point, as you enter into that world and get stabilized there, at some point you'll find it's not useful to have that idea anymore. And so that idea drops away. So in the dropping away of that idea, that idea of being I'm entering into the breath, that activity, that mental activity that says, okay, I'm now entering into the breathing, or I'm allowing the breath to come to me, that's a mental action, it's a mental activity. And at some point that activity can be put to rest. So whenever there's a relationship that we have, that we create and form into anything, it involves some kind of mental activity. Nothing wrong with mental activity, but it's really useful to recognize it as mental activity. Or as the Buddha called it, mental construction. We're constructing something in our mind. And so what what are things, one of the opportunities in meditation is to understand these activities, and to begin questioning them. Questioning that, do I have to live in them all the time? There are a lot of people, most people in the world, I would venture to say, take their thinking and their mental activity completely for granted. This is the nature of how the universe is built. There's no other option. But there is another option. It's possible to put to rest. Or it's possible not to be in it in, or creating relationships all the time to our experience. To have a vacation. So imagine, you're born among a species of humans that are swimmers. So you're born in the ocean. And so you know how to swim. So you start swimming when you get born. And you swim, and you swim, and you swim. And after some decades of swimming, it's been very interesting. You've done, you know, the Tao of swimming. You've gotten into the flow of it. It's been great. But you're still swimming. You've been in rebellion to the swimming, and you fought it. But you're still swimming. You fought with. You swim with fists. <laughs> You get all kinds of wonderful ways of swimming, but it's still swimming. You become one with swimming, but you're still swimming. And then you hear that maybe you have to say, maybe there's an alternative. So 
someone says, well, you know, maybe there's land way to the west, and you swim to the west. Nothing. Someone tells, oh, maybe it's to the north. You swim. All this promise, you get excited, you swim harder. Nothing's there. No to the south, no to the west. And finally you meet an old wise person. And the person says, oh, just turn over and you can float. Stop swimming. Just lay on your back and the water will hold you up. So we have all this mental activity, doing and doing and fixing and engineering and thinking and planning and all this stuff, and even beautiful stuff, becoming one with our experience. Beautiful, being in love with everything. It's all activity. Not to belittle some of the beautiful stuff at all. But there's this radical thing that can happen where we don't relate. We leave it be as it is. This is how it is. And that's meant to be something very, very simple. And it's meant to be something very, very closely akin to a moment of mindfulness. To be mindful and let the experience be what it is. Don't pick it up. Don't relate to it any special way. Don't be for it. Don't be against it. Don't brace yourself against it. Don't protect yourself from it. Don't try to fix it. Don't try to develop it. Just be. Don't think about it. Don't, ha- don't just let it just be there. So maybe now you get some sense of the, the possibility of this practice here and how maybe it can, it's really profound, but the profundity of it can be seen, can be difficult to see because we're so, we always want to be in relationship with things. But what about just leaving it be? Now, if you're free, since Buddhism is about freedom, if you're free only when you're comfortable, you're not really free. If you're free only when things are going the way you want them to go, you're not really free. So to let things be in mindfulness and awareness, when things are not going the way we want, when things are not comfortable, is actually necessary to discover this beautiful freedom, or this beautiful possibility of rest, of bringing things to rest. And there's a season, there's a season for letting things be put to rest. And there's a season for being in relationship to the world and activity. It's not like one or the other. But to be able to go back and forth and have a sense of both supports, supports both worlds. So there's what's happening, there's our relationship to what's happening, our attitude, our intentions, our, you know, the whole world of, that is a big area of study. We understand these, try to understand this, and the deeper we understand this, 
more we understand that how our way we relate maybe is is caught up in clinging, the easier it is to begin untangling ourselves from that world of clinging. So clinging is a relationship. So there's what's happening, and then there's our relationship to it. And then there's the self that creates the relationship, the self that experiences the results of the relationship, the self that has these mental constructions. And that's a whole other area where there's it's a, a mindful study of development of wisdom and understanding about this nature of what this we call the self, who I am. And there's many aspects of this. There's all these things that I call myself. This is who I am. Some of it, maybe it's quite reasonable. But when you call yourself something, do you hold it like this? Or do you hold it like this? Which way is more beautiful? So, you know, here I am. I'm a teacher tonight. I'm in the role of a teacher. Which way do I hold it? Do I define myself that in a tight way? This is who I am. You guys better realize it and treat me that way. (laughs) You know, or... You know, it seems to be a role, it's a convention, it has its usefulness. So I'm hoping it's helpful to people. And, you know, I'm happy to let go of the convention. So what, what, what identities are we holding on to? And there's a lot of them that play themselves out in a retreat. Identities of being a good meditator, or a bad meditator. Or, I'm a hopeless meditator. This is hope, I'm hopeless. And maybe, you know, that's a, you know, we add something on top of it. And then society will put identities on us that causes a lot of suffering for many of us. When I was in seventh grade, my art teacher told me that I, have, that I had no artistic ability. Well, I didn't know anything about anything. So she's the authority, and I didn't really care. Whether I had, you know, it didn't mean anything to me, so, but yeah, I guess that's who I am. I have so, great, you know, I went happily along. I'm one of those people, no artistic ability, until uh, freshman in college, and um, my roommate was a born-again artist. And he, it was his job to convert me. <laughs> so it turned out I did have some artistic ability. But so there was an identity that I locked into. So here in retreat, do we lock into them? And then, um, so so how many of how many of the identities we hold cause our suffering? Cause our suffering. And then there's ideas that we have around what it is to be a self, and we hold on to some of these ideas quite tightly. Self has needs. Self has this need, this desire. Self requires this. This self has this history. This, ha- this, you know, all this stuff around self. Some of it's accurate enough, but it's also a convention, it's construction. And it's really amazing 
to begin putting the constructions down. It's very difficult for some of the deeper held things. I was totally amazed in living in a Japanese monastery in Japan. And one day, living with 30 Japanese, only Japanese, speaking only Japanese, one day I kind of woke up and I realized, wow, these people here, they live in a radically different social universe than I live in like a different universe. That's how I felt at the time. I saw myself as an individual in a set of other individuals. And I, I don't know exactly how to say it right, but, but I saw it, how I saw it at the time was I saw the Japanese monks there. They were all units. They were all elements or pieces of a social whole. So I saw the whole as being the individual. They saw the whole as the group. And I was just amazed that there could be such different ways of being in the world. And I thought, uh, followed on that was, neither way, neither way is right or wrong. They both have their ways. But it's deeply embedded cultural conditioning to how we see the sense of self. And I, I now, you know, I was, I was passing on to my son, for better or worse, some of my Nordic, European, and American strands, currents of individualism. I can't help myself. And I think that uh, it's possible to hold these deeply, deeply embedded ideas of what it means to be a self an individual and all that, in ways that are freeing and beautiful. And it's also possible to hold it in ways that causes a lot of suffering. I think all the cultural ideas that people have about who they are can be both beautiful and create a lot of suffering. How we hold it is so important. And one of the contributions of Buddhism, Buddhist practice, I hope, is this ability to see, oh, they're constructions. They're not inherent in the, in the universe. Oh, they're constructions. And then we can start questioning how we relate to them, what we do with them. So then the self here, you know, the self, it's the things which are mine. My practice. Those people are interfering with my practice. (laughs) My precious. You know, so that's mine. So, or it's my, my seat in the hall. I mean, imagine if you came into your in here, and someone else sat right there in your in your seat. Wait a minute, that's my seat. But my is a convention. If we all left this evening in different shoes than we came with, <laughs> our shoes wouldn't care. <laughs>
<clears throat> the caring has to do with conventions, has to do with mental constructs we live in. There's a beautiful story of Suzuki Roshi. There's a picture that was taken of him just when he was telling when this, this story happened. So this picture of he's he's holding up his glasses like this, and he's leaning forward with his glasses. And what he was said was he said, "These glasses are not my glasses, but you know about my tired old eyes, so you let me wear them." So come in here, and someone's sitting in your seat. Oh. Meditating is a good thing. I hope the person's comfortable there. I'll sit somewhere else. That's an option, right? As radical and unthinkable as you could... (laughs) 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 So, you know, this is mine. All kinds of stuff. My needs. So there are needs, there are beautiful things about the self also, but, but there's a time and place to take the mental construct, ideas of self, and put them to rest. A lot of how we understand ourselves as a self is mediated through thinking. Who are you if you don't use your thoughts to tell you? If you have some point, the opportunity to have your thinking thin out, and there's a gap between your thoughts, who are you in the gap? You haven't disappeared. You're still breathing and sensing and, you know, who are you? To be able to put to rest these constructions allows for beautiful music beautiful bell sound to come out. To put it to rest, it's a lot easier to pick them up then and hold the conventions and things of the world lightly and not destroy them by grasping onto them. So in this practice of mindfulness, we begin slowly, begin understanding how things arise and pass, the impers- imp- imp- impermanent nature of things. And as we start seeing how things arise and pass, how things that, you know, like you came to the retreat, and if you're attentive, you could watch the arising, the creation, the construction of this is my place in the hall. And if you're attentive as you at the end of the retreat, you can watch the dissolution of my place in the hall. It arises and it passes away. So many different things arise and pass, arise and things very quickly, something slowly. Seeing the arising and passing of this mental activity, mental constructions, concepts, ideas. The arising of how we relate, a re- forming a relationship to anything and seeing that it dissolves makes it a lot easier than to just leave it alone. Things arise on their own, leave it alone, just hold it in awareness, hold it in mindfulness. No need to go towards it, away from it, no need to use mindfulness to penetrate it. 
no need to avoid it. Awareness. And so then it helps, that helps things to settle down, to relax. You know the great story, the analogy of the still forest pool. That if you if you have a muddy muddy pond and you stir it up, it stays muddy. But if you leave it alone, the mud settles. So if you just use the mindfulness, let things be, it's okay. Everything's okay. And then as you don't feed it, as you don't get involved and engaged in all of it, slowly, in its own time, when it's right, these mental constructs will, first, maybe you won't invest so much in them. You won't believe every thought. You won't take them as being authoritative. You won't take it as necessary to always be in relationship. Even though you're still relating, you might say, oh, there's an alternative. And then it's possible that somehow some of the sense of mine, myself, me, the sense of a self, begins to get looser and lighter for you. And perhaps there are even times when that sense of self, the construct and ideas we have self, can fade away for a while. And then it becomes really interesting. There's subject, verb, object. The object is your problem. The verb is your relationship to the problem. And the subject is you. Most people try to solve the problem. They can't solve the problem, they try to fix the relationship. But what happens if the subject is not there? What happens then? If the subject itself belongs to this world of mental constructions, mental activity, is it possible to quiet that down, bring that to stillness? It's a beautiful thing to do. And it's completely safe to do it. In fact, it's one of the safest things you can do if you want to be protected or if you want the most beautiful parts of your life to come forth. It tends to come forth some of the most beautiful parts where we're not trying to make something happen. So mindfulness or awareness that has no location, there's no here, no there, and no in-between. All constructed things are impermanent. They have the nature of arising and passing away. 
bringing all these to stillness is happiness. Anicca vata sankara upadavayo damino upakitu aniru chanti tesang bupasamo sukho